I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Poppin'. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Yay! We are doing another remote episode. <laughs> it's so weird. We're still trying to figure out the tech side of things. I did like such a creepy thing and I dropped off a black backpack on your porch the other day with your microphone in it. And then I was like, oh my God, your roommates are going to think I'm such a creep. (laughs) Hello, it's me. They were probably like, what is this unmarked package on our front porch? Yes, but we'll figure out how to, uh, how to hook it up pretty soon. Yes, we will get it rigged up for sure. How are you holding up, Moss? Oh, you know, <laughs> I am. I'm holding up, right? I feel like that's kind of, it's very up and down. I was talking to um, my therapist about this yesterday and how it's just very like, you know, some days I'm like, this is fine. <laughs> and then other days I like, you know, want to scream. Yeah. At like two in the morning, I started to get really nervous last night. which is not <laughs> an ideal time, but no. I think I finished my book and I was like, what do I do now? What does my brain do now? <laughs> Yes, exactly. I, need distraction. I, I hadn't been sleeping good. That was my thing, like, because I would be fine for most of the day, and then, like, at, like, one in the morning or two in the morning, I would be, like, I would lie awake and just think of how awful everything <laughs> seemed or seems. I feel like we have sort of a vision of the, or, like, we have this idea that it's going to get worse, but, like, that hasn't happened yet and so it's just that we we're in like a strange space of anticipating one sort of amusing story i saw today that's related to the coronavirus was just that the national cathedral had found 5095 respirator masks hidden in their crypt and i was like that what (laughs) that's wild what's a crypt right I mean, well, yeah, like, I know, I always think of, like, a scary, like, Tales from the Crypt, right? I don't know. It seems like it's, like, a morgue, but... Fact check. What is a crypt? What is a crypt? <laughs> yeah, it's like a, um... Like a mausoleum? A mausoleum, yeah. I don't like, what are those things called? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have gone exactly two weeks cooking my own meals every day, which is very Yay. unlike me. <laughs> but tonight... We're going, we ordered Armsby. Nice. Yeah, I got the tacos. They look so good. Did you see they've been really generous feeding the staff and allowing you guys to pick up family meals? It's been lovely. Just like so wonderful to us. Like just meals and all, all kinds of stuff. Just like general support to just being like, hey, if you guys need anything. They just posted on social media that they're teaming up with Wooberry for some classic. Armsby cocktails made into ice cream. Yeah, they posted a couple. Some of them are done. They have Mexican iced coffee and um, Resolutions End. Uh, Resolutions End is my all-time favorite shift drink. It's everyone's, it seems. (laughs) I like to get something with like a jalapeno tequila. That's my Mm. favorite. But yeah, so that is very exciting. Sarah, what is your favorite meal that you have cooked for yourself? Stuffed shells. I wrote about this in my column last week but yeah. my grandma's recipe and that was really nice because I was able to eat it for multiple meals it reminded me of my grandparents but I've been baking a lot too peanut uh-huh. butter cookies birthday cake brownies I've been oh, doing yeah, it all birthday cake. yep I love that yeah so I I'm just cooking my way through I'm learning I a lot it. 
you got yeah that's how you learn you're gonna be an expert chef by the end of this oh god I hope so but I've also burned a lot of time watching Tiger King yes Uh, haven't we all (laughs) I love it though I like it has cults scams murders mullets baby animals you know it's, I, it's amazing. It's I'm sitting amazing. here, like, you're naming all these things, and I'm literally shaking my head just like... Netflix really gave us a gift with that one. They did, and I was talking to someone about this, how I feel like in 20 years, like, we're going to look back on this time and be like, remember Tiger King? <laughs> it's just like, the, it's like a weird cultural touchstone where, like, every single person is watching it. Oh my god, absolutely. Yeah, but it is... So if you haven't seen Tiger King, it is this story of some different big cat enthusiasts <laughs> and what happened was they started filming this documentary about just about this character joe exotic who really is truly like a character of a person what happened was they were filming it they were talking to him they were talking to this guy doc Antle, who has a harem safari a hair yes his <laughs> myrtle beach safari and then this woman carol baskins who is kind of anti what these two guys are doing with their private zoos, essentially. But what happened is they were filming it, and as they were filming just, like, a regular documentary about these people, several things unfolded, including, like, a federal investigation. There's this shift, too, when it goes Uh from sourced videos that were taken on people's phones and... It becomes a very highly produced Netflix documentary. And I want the backstory on that still. Like, at what point do they realize they have struck gold? Right. Like, obviously, it probably would have been interesting enough to just, like, chronicle this dude, Joe Exotic. But, yes, there had to have been a turning point where they were like, this is much crazier than we realized right so this got me thinking too a little bit about wild worcester like what are some crazy stories i chatted with bill wallace earlier today from the worcester historic museum he was a wealth of knowledge but there's one story in particular that i wanted to talk about today and i was thinking like i would tell you a story today molly And you could kind of help me do that by asking some good questions along the way. And then maybe next week you could tell me a story, that kind of thing. I am all in. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm very excited. So this is the story of the assassination of Andrew Haswell Green. Now, if you're from Worcester, you've definitely been to Green Hill Park before. I run there a few times a week. It's like 500 acres. It's beautiful right in the middle of the city. And it's right at the top of one of Worcester's seven hills. But I didn't know a lot about the Green family. I guess Andrew was one of 11. And I guess when you're one of 11, too, you kind of get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, you would think, right? The family lived in complete isolation. So they would say, like, yeah, if there was a snowstorm, we wouldn't see people for weeks. But they totally did their own thing in this giant mansion. I believe it was on the hill to the right if you go in from Lincoln Street. If you go to the right, before you get to the pond, there, there's the old, there was a, there's the handball court. And of course the house grew over time. It was an 18th century house and it grew from, from time to time. And Andrew, probably during his lifetime when he was coming back and forth to Worcester, was responsible for expanding it significantly. When they tore it down in the 50s, 
there were 42 rooms, but they continued to like add to it and add to it over the years. So I don't know when he was a little kid exactly how grandiose it was. (laughs) And he didn't spend all of his time there. Bill was able to clarify for me like, that was always home for him. Like they, they live off and on in Green. Various members live in Green Hill, and he comes back home. He comes home when they need him. He comes home for rest and relaxation. He never actually leaves Green Hill. Gotcha. Now, Green Hill is an anchor point for him. Um, there, I recall when the auction of Green family, um, uh, when the auction of Green family uh, treasures was held. What maybe what? Five eight years ago at the DCU Center, one of the the key items was was the guest register for Green Hill Park, or what was then the Green House. And all of his friends from New York would come visit him, and they'd all sign in. They drew things in the book, and they 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 would enjoy coming to Worcester as a point of recreation and socialization. He went back and forth to New York City a lot, and even as a teenager. Yeah. He was living with his two older sisters in the city, working as an errand boy. So I get the sense that he like grew up really fast. He, right. He was really probably independent from a young age. And so because he is this independent boy who's like made a life for himself as a teen in New York City, his father sees him as the natural heir, the person that's going to take over the household at Green Hill. And when he turns 24, his father makes a formal ask and says, will you take over Green Hill and and take care of the estate? He's like, I'm not super handy, and I really, really would like to become an attorney and live in New York City. I'm just not sure that this is the path for me. He was a fancy boy. He just wanted to chill. I know. And that doesn't stop him from feeling really guilty because he's gone back and forth there, particularly when he's ill throughout his yeah. life. And I was like, Bill, did he suffer from some sort of long-term illness? Like chronic illness, yeah. And he was like, no, just people in this particular era would go to the country for fresh air, you know? <laughs> the importance of being earnest. They're always like going back and back to the country. That's exactly it. So he would be back and forth from New York to Worcester a lot. But he said to his father, I really want to make my career in New York City. And by 1845, he had enough experience to become a lawyer. Was there, so so I guess, did you have to like ask the bar? Or was he just like, oh, I'm ready. Okay, when I was reading it, it kind of reminded (laughs) me of what I've been reading about Kim Kardashian's new law career. It was like you needed a certain amount of hours or a certain amount of time studying under a practicing attorney. Yeah. Oh, okay. So like an apprenticeship. So the attorney that he became very close with, the first person that hired him was this gentleman named Samuel Tilden. And he went on to become the governor of New York. He was a railroad attorney. Which reminded me, I read that. I was like, a railroad attorney? Is this Ayn Rand? Like, are we, <laughs> are we entering like who is John Galt? situation here? I hope not. I hope not, too. (laughs) Um, But he also ran for president, and he was the first and the only individual to win an outright majority of the popular vote in the United States, but lose the election itself. Well, that's happened a bunch of times, though, hasn't it? I don't know. This is coming from Wikipedia, this particular fact. Uh, Well, maybe an outright majority, right? Yeah. uh, Hillary... Hillary Clinton and Al Gore both won the popular vote. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, but I think it was, I think that is the clarifying outright word, right? Majority. Outright majority. But Tilden's like a big deal. And I guess the two of them initially meet at a party, which I totally think of as his great Gatsby moment. Yeah. 
he's like one of a ragtag bunch of 11 who live on this farm in Worcester, you know, and he's Uh like on this dude's yacht. So Tilden had this yacht that was called the Viking and he would host all of these fancy lunches with all of these New York businessmen. I love it. Okay. So Green, he goes on to become this like amazing political figure in New York city. He's the president of the school board. He's the leader of the central park commission. He creates the Met and the natural history museum. Yes. And I think this is so crazy because he like, kind of grew up here like you said before like on a farm he's like a ragtag kid and then he basically just like invented new york city yeah (laughs) no really (laughs) they literally call him the father of greater new york it's insane he's the one that brought the five boroughs together he convinced all the leaders of the five boroughs to consolidate in 1898 and form this metropolitan hub that we know as new york today yeah like he invented new york oh incredible he was a phenomenal influence on the uh, present day city of New York the New York we all think of in terms of the park and natural history and its current design and I looked to I was like well how many people lived in the five boroughs back then two million so like this is a pretty big deal yeah and somewhere along the way of him becoming this amazing renowned businessman and organizer it's thought that he and Tilden develop some sort of close, loving relationship. Yes, perhaps romantic. Perhaps romantic. They're known <laughs> to have written ornate and gushing letters. Neither of them ever married. And a lot more has to do with people's thoughts on Tilden because he owned a mansion next to another of his supposed lovers Aww. in Gramercy Park. There's also some thought that this particular time in history, men were much more welcome to express themselves and, like, be affectionate yes. toward one another. For sure. So there's nothing confirmed. But what we do know is that when Tilden dies at age 72, Green is the executor of his will. He's the pallbearer at the funeral. And President Cleveland comes to the funeral. Tilden is still really, really highly thought of. Yeah. Sheesh. And then the family, Tilden's family, fights Green for control of the money. They want the money themselves. And Tilden... They become very good friends and reliant upon... He's very reliant upon each other. And Tilden is reliant upon Andrew Haswell Green to take care of his, his, his intent and his wealth and his commitment to New York after he dies. Green is able to create the New York Public Library Central Building using Tilden's fortune. Did he have, like, any specific, or is it known if he had any specific affinity for the idea of a public library, or is it just, that was, like, just the thing he chose? I think he just loved the law. Mm -hmm. Access to education was very important as a politician, and so I think it was just, like, a natural legacy to build to create a New York public library, especially if his partner is truly the one to have brought all these five boroughs together. Yes, Flash forward, and like we can all agree, Green's legacy is amazing, and you know, that should be the focus. But this is supposed to be a wild Worcester story. I really want to talk about the end of Green's life. So it's 1903. Green is just walking home. He's going to have lunch. At the time, he lives with his niece. He's brought her as kind of like a caretaker to live with him. She makes him lunch every day, they enjoy each other's company. And right as he gets home, he's accosted by a man in a bowler hat with a mustache who's getting into this, like, irate altercation with him. He has no idea who it is. 
the man shoots him five times at the gate of his house, and everybody is totally confused. And then when you're famous, you get assassinated as opposed to killed. I was wondering what the distinction was. <laughs> Don't you think? I think that's the distinction, you know? I, you and I could get killed, but, but if you you're know, famous. a president of the United States or somebody who is that important to the city of New York is assassinated. Don't you think it's a social distinction? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, he just, did he just flee? So the guy, he doesn't get away. There's some clear intent here on his part, but it seems as if nobody can create a connection between the two of them. So everyone's totally confused. There's this great book. It's called New York's Father is Murdered by Michael Rubinaccio. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the book about this murder or assassination. And Bill can give us some thoughts, too, on what makes an assassination versus a murder. It says, at this point, Green turned to open the little iron gate that enclosed the front area of his home to get away from Williams. As he turned, opened the gate, and took the first steps inside, William grabbed him by the arm and spun him around. Stunned Green froze for a split second. Now, face to face with Green, Williams raised his arms and pointed a six-shooter revolver at Green and fired five shots, one after the other, in rapid succession. So everyone's like, who is this guy, Cornelius Williams? And why did he just yes. shoot the father of New York? Yes. Why? Clearly, he had no idea. Green had no idea who this guy was. Right? So. So they settle on the idea that this is actually a case of mistaken identity. Cornelius Williams says that he thought that 83-year-old Green was actually a different man, a different octogenarian in his 80s, <laughs> John R. Platt. Both medium height, both spare build, which I think means, like, slender. Yes. Gray hair, gray beard. That would make sense, too, because he's, like, sickly. Uh, Well, first of all, I just love the idea that this dude, Cornelius Williams, they get him, and he's like, well, listen, I just thought it was a different person, so, (laughs) sorry. Oh, yeah, I definitely killed that guy, but, like, I thought it was someone else, so, you know, no big deal. I mean, clearly he was, like, in a a fit of passion and had, like, planned this out. Why did he want to kill the other guy? Okay, so Green's doppelganger, John Platt, he wasn't a bad guy, but he was definitely prone to vices. He had given more than $700,000 to a woman named Hannah Elias over the course of eight years. And I looked that up because I was like, $700,000 in 1900? How much? That seems like a lot of money. Yeah, okay, so if we do the exchange today in 2020 it would be 21 million five hundred fifty six thousand five hundred dollars jesus i know so that's like that's like how much that guy wanted when he tried to extort david letterman i was trying to figure out who (laughs) this woman is yeah and like how could she have possibly convinced him to give her that much money what could she have over him you know right Also, her name sounds fake. Okay, so it's so funny you say that because she also was known by Bessie Davis. And I guess, like, Bessie Davis was her original name. And then she started to go by Johanna Elias as she became an entrepreneur. So, I think that this girl, like, she was smart. She had something going on. She's, like, getting money from all these men. Yeah. Like a lot of money. Well, and I'm thinking, like, who is this Cornelius Williams? How is he connected to her and the affair? 
Right. So I guess she owned a boarding house and Cornelius boarded with her and he became obsessed with her. Now, it's not clear if they ever like actually had any sort of physical affair or if it was just his infatuation. Yeah. But he starts to grow suspicious of John Platt, who has only come to the house once looking for Hannah. But he's like very, very suspicious. And after Platt, yeah, Platt rings the doorbell. Cornelius starts following him. He spies on him through his office window in downtown Manhattan. He's following him everywhere he goes. So he, yeah, he has like a good idea. Even outside the age of social media, he knows what this guy looks like. It's like that TV show, You. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was thinking that. I'm like, oh, he has no idea. Like just looking in the windows. It's like actual stalking. And Hannah, I thought up to this point, well, maybe she is innocent in all this. Maybe she doesn't know. Like, maybe they didn't have an affair. But at some point, she does send word to John Platt's brother to say that if he doesn't pay her even more money, even more quickly, she's going to tell his two daughters that they had an affair. And so she's, like, about that life. She's about to run up on the whole fam. Oh, my God. Totally. She's trying to turn everyone against one another. And whether or not Cornelius Williams is in on it, I'm not sure, but she definitely yeah. wants to get that money. She, to me, sounds like, like, a, like oh, for almost fictional, right? Like, like a character in a movie who's like social climbing and just like very, very shrewd about her choices, it, like down to the name, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, to go from being Bessie to become Johanna. Oh, absolutely. And I was looking into this more, so I'm like, okay, who is Hannah Elias? How did they meet? What's her background? So I found a few things, and this is all sourced from New York Times and also from the book I referenced earlier and some information from Bill Wallace. But I guess Hannah and John, they first met when she was just 16 years old. Now, he at the time was a fireman, and it was his job to entertain any groups of firefighters that would come and visit New York. So there was a group that had come from San Francisco, and he was entertaining them. They were staying at a boarding house, and at the time, Hannah was 16, and she was working for the cook at the boarding house. Okay. It doesn't indicate that there was anything romantic going on between the two of them, but, like, obviously they connected, because I don't know about you, but I don't remember a cook that I met 10 years ago. Right? Like, like, absolutely. Like, oh, this teen girl, like, working in the kitchen. He said later, it was my hospitality to these men which brought me in contact with the woman who has come to ruin me. Oh, my God. And that's from a New York Times statement that he gives once this all blows up. That's a quote. And he calls her an octo rune, which was not a word that I knew. I cannot believe that. I mean, so, yes, that. Is it a terrible slur, too? Because I don't want to say it if it is. Um, well, I think if you're referencing the history of it, right? No, I just. OK, so I it's looked it up. It's a historical thing. I think at the time that it was used, people were like it. It implied like the greater oppression faced by black people because it was still like it was that idea that like the the one drop of blood right one drop of like like african or or slave blood that's exactly what it means that you're of african-american descent but octo refers to one eighth as in like it's a a small part of your heritage so 
there's not a lot written about her race, but I have to imagine that there were plenty of implications in the late 1800s if this woman is running a business that would be equivalent to a $20 million business. Yeah. And so her neighbors all thought she was some sort of African queen, that she came from African royalty, and those were the rumors that were circulating Manhattan. That is also very interesting. So they meet when she's 16, but the relationship doesn't start until more than a decade later. And it's like total kismet. It's so bizarre. He is looking for a nurse. He has rheumatism, which I guess is like arthritis. Yeah. And he's looking in the newspaper for a masseuse who can help him during his recovery. And he recognizes Hannah Elias. He's like, oh, I know her. And so she becomes his masseuse. Like we said, like, how did he remember her? Like, there had to have been something earlier. Yeah, I think that there's something fishy. And with the name changes and everything, I'm not exactly sure how that could have happened. Right. But eventually, she nurses him back to health. And in exchange, she asks if he'll invest in her business, which is a boarding house. She wants to leave the nursing caretaking field and open her own boarding house. He agrees. He's so appreciative that she's brought him back. And obviously there's an attraction brewing between them. For sure. So meanwhile, Mr. Green, Andrew, he's been visiting his relatives regularly and they live at 236 Central Park West. Hannah Elias has her boarding house next door at 235 Central Park West. We know she's got this guy who's like totally obsessed with her, totally infatuated, Cornelius Williams, and he's watching really closely. Like even after he leaves the boarding house, he continues to spy on Hannah all the time and he's stalking Mr. Platt. Like he's really in this. He's lost his mind. And so he sees when Mr. Green walks in to visit 236 Central Park West and assumes that Uh, it's Mr. Platt walking into 235 Central Park West to see Hannah. He follows him all the way back to his own home, follows Mr. Green, and that's when he shoots him five times. When the police arrive, he immediately turns over his gun. He says that the guy had provoked it, but he admits that he committed the murder Oh, that's interesting. And they send him to this mental hospital, Medewan State Hospital for the Criminal Insane, and he lives out the rest of his days there. I mean, he clearly was not well. So do you think, do you think that he was under the impression that if John Platt was going to visit her or to see her that, like, Hannah was in danger, like, that John Platt would have done something to her we don't know we know that he's definitely jealous and he's infatuated she never says like cornelius and i were lovers or anything like that she always says he was a tenant of hers he lived in the boarding house so do you think that he thought that john platt was gonna like kill hannah for like blackmailing him well it's interesting you say that because it doesn't stop there like if i was hannah and this case of mistaken identity resulted in the assassination of the father of new york city (laughs) yeah I'd be like, um, excuse me, I would like to come forward and tell you that this has happened and it's my fault or whatever. But she doesn't stop there. She uses it as leverage. She uses the murder to ask Platt for more sums of money and says she'll come forward and reveal their affair to everybody if he doesn't pay up. Oh, my God. So at this point, poor old Platt becomes poor old Platt. I mean, he has been, you know, unfaithful to his wife. But he starts to contemplate suicide. He's quoted saying, It comes pretty hard for an old soldier to be disgraced when his battle of life is almost over, but I have made up my mind to retreat in as good order as possible. 
And so he comes forward to the police and tells them that Hannah Elias has been blackmailing him. She gets sent to court. The trial lasts two days. There's like a huge crowd. It's the talk of the town. Everyone wants to be there. And she says that the money was all a gift and that he loved her so much that even after his wife died six months later, he gifted her his wife's watch, his wife's pocketbook, all of his wife's fine things that like Mr. Platt was in love with her. And these were gifts and she was not blackmailing him. What do you think? What is the what is the truth? I don't know, because if his wife had died, I guess what's the harm that he would ruin his reputation with the daughters? I guess, yeah. But at any rate, the judge decides this is too convoluted, dismisses the case, and Platt is forced to live out the rest of his life in poverty in one of his daughter's homes. So he goes from being the equivalent of a multimillionaire (laughs) today to dying alone and poor under the watchful eye of one of his daughters who now probably probably so mad at yeah wow (laughs) meanwhile our girl hannah is living it up totally undocumented unknown nobody knows what happens to her what yeah there's no record of it so like i i i maybe she assumed another identity later she must have. And this is the early 1900s. So I think that there's a lot more flexibility for a, a brilliant con woman than there would be now. Right. Oh, that's cool. Oh, my God. I Yeah. So I'm really curious. And Bill Wallace gave me the name of a historian who specializes in Andrew Green's life. And he was like, he might have more information. But Bill said he didn't have any any more information either. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, she is definitely the best character in this story oh my god so brilliant Um, i love a good social climber yeah but also just like kind of sinister yeah she definitely is cutthroat she's in survival mode at what cost (laughs) (laughs) all right so after green's assassination they hold the funeral in new york city and then they ask the family asks that he's buried in worcester They bring his body back to Green Hill for the burial service, which is private, but like a bunch of New York politicians and local politicians here say they really want to attend. And so the family allows some of them to attend, but it's like a cold, snowy day in November. See if there's any account of his burial, but he is buried at Rural. He's he's one of the people we tour to regularly. Where is Rural? Rural Cemetery is the one on Grove Street across from Ernie's car wash. Of course. Oh, wow. The second oldest rural cemetery in New England. It was patterned after Mount Auburn, and it was a, it was a, started by a series of, I'm sorry, a group of, of men in Worcester who were looking in an alt- for, to an alternative for public burial grounds. Um, and it's, it's, it's part of the rural cemetery movement, which was a reaction to the opening of, or response to the opening of Père Lachaise in Paris when they moved the, the cemeteries from the typical graveyard to more of what we think of as a garden cemetery. Um, it's a privately owned corporation, but he's, he's there with the rest of the Green family. It's an enormous plot. And he leaves his estate to his five nieces and nephews, and then they sell the parkland to Worcester two years later, and the family estate becomes a public park. And now we have a place That's to right. sit and read books. And it's so funny, because like we've lived here forever, and I had never <sighs> heard this story until Bill mentioned it to me. And the city's website about Green Hill Park just says, like, 
By the purchase, the city of Worcester acquired a large and unique park resource which has since provided recreational opportunities for many generations of city residents. But there is like, no okay, mention yeah. of assassination or tragedy. Or even of, like, does it mention, like, like all, like, his legacy? Like, who he was? Uh, yeah, a little bit. He's a little bit? Okay. widely known say, as... That's a huge deal. And I feel like, I mean, that Green Hill Park is my favorite park in Worcester. And I do think that it is more sophisticated. I don't know. It feels more like Central Park, right? There's something about it that, like, the design of it or, the like, the layout that does feel extra special well it makes sense now to know that the original commissioner of central park it was actually his home and he was obsessed with landscape architecture it's so interesting to just like make that connection because i feel like you you can you'll be there and you're like this place is special it Um, is special well that's the story of andrew haswell green but as i was reading it too i came across another tidbit and maybe we can delve into this deeper for next time Andrew's great aunt, Mary Ruggles, she also lived at Green Hill, and her sister was executed while pregnant for the murder of her husband and buried somewhere at Green Hill Park. That's crazy. That is so juicy. Yeah, so it says... She murdered her own husband. Her lawyer claimed insanity in the case of this woman who supposedly incited two passing soldiers and her lover to murder her husband. Oh she, my God, it's like um to die for. That weather woman, a meteorologist woman who like hired her like teen boyfriend and like his friends to kill her husband. And she claims pregnancy to avoid being executed and it's yes. found to be right. She is five months pregnant at the time she's executed and her body is supposedly buried somewhere in Green Hill Park. Oh my God, it's a tale as old as time. So this was Andrew's aunt. So there's definitely like a legacy of tragedy that exists in the Green family. Yeah, tragedy, but also like juice. Well, Bill said that salacious. a lot of the... It's salacious. That's the word I'm looking for. Salacious. And Bill said yeah. that a lot of the documents that they had been looking for for years had disappeared about the family and they just resurfaced six or seven years ago when somebody passed away and they were found in this person's private collection in their home in Worcester. And so they sold them all at this giant auction, but it included a guest book to the Green Hill house and it was like the who's who of New York City elite would come to Worcester all the time to visit the Green Estate. That... It is wild. Like Rockefellers? I don't know. Oh, we'll so have cool. to, yeah. But I can't wait to learn more about our city's weird and wild history. I know. It's so strange, like, to think of, I mean, like, we live here now, right? And it's, I always think it's so weird that, like, this place has existed for hundreds of years. Billions, millions, whatever. However old the earth is. How old is the earth? It's but so true. Well, even just is, the Green Estate, after the Greens had all passed and gone and they left it to the city, I guess the city would use the Green Hill Mansion, where Andrew grew up, as an isolation spot for kids who had hay fever, which is like oh allergies, right? I was going to say, isn't hay fever allergies? And they would send them there to like live in this house. So oh yeah, God. I think just like sneeze all day. Green Hill Park is filled with secrets. Maybe they thought it was a different... Maybe they thought it was a different ailment that was, like, contagious. To bring this full circle. (laughs) That's super weird. It's one of the weirdest things about this, and we heard a lot of crazy things. Yeah. You guys got hate? You guys got allergies? (laughs) See ya. 
Joe Exotic? We want to know more. Uh, yeah. Oh my god, remember that house that was on sale that was like totally crazy? Yes. I want to know more about that house and the people who lived in it. There was a, a couple years ago, there was a house for sale here in Worcester, right? Uh-huh. And it was so like ornate and just like out of character for like what you would think of for a Worcester home. There was like so much, there was like gold in it, right? There was like, everything was like, it looked like Donald Trump lived there. Yeah, if you hadn't bought it furnished, I think it would look so weird and like empty and foolish. But I imagine that they sold it as is. I just would love to know who occupied that house and like what their whole deal was, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will continue to dig into these mysteries. Thank you, Molly. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. This is fun. Yes. I can't wait to hear story time from you. <laughs> I know. I got to find a good one. All right. I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And this is Pop It. Pop It.